This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. inviting me and uh, I know it's a difficult time of the year to uh, escape away from all the exams and the deadlines Um, but I hope today uh, to present to you the initial findings of actually an ongoing study we're still gathering data even right now my colleagues in Lebanon were visiting a school today so uh, we're hoping to finish the study end of June so today I will just share with you some initial findings It's obviously the Syrian crisis, one of the challenges that it brings with it is education. How to educate this huge number of uh, Syrian refugee children in a small country like Lebanon. Um, And Lebanon historically doesn't have a very good record of education for the refugees. We know uh, very well the issue of the Palestinian refugees who are still at the moment in camps, closed camps. They learn the Lebanese curriculum. They are one of the most disadvantaged groups in Lebanon. The Iraqis who came to Lebanon, unfortunately, went unnoticed. 30,000 came in to the educational system and out, dropped out, and no one really kicked a fuss about them because they were too small. The good thing about the Syrian refugees is that the scale is so huge, which is very sad, yet at least finally they're getting a bit of attention and the issue of education of the refugees is being discussed. Lebanon tries on the whole to kind of uh, overlook any issues of the refugees. Lebanon, uh, the Lebanese government hasn't signed to the agree- any agreements regarding the refugees. It considers the Syrian refugees as displaced. And this is because, obviously, of a political, uh, you know, trying to deny that there's something actually happening in Syria. For a long time, they were saying, like, why are they coming? You know, there's nothing really happening there. So, um, so um, just to give you uh, a little bit uh, of an overlook on the, today's presentation. So I will start by explaining my research focus and methodology, and then I will take you into the Lebanese educational system just to understand a little bit about its uh, specificity, because it's a bit different from the Jordanian and the Egyptian system, which operates in Arabic. In Lebanon, the educational system actually operates in English or in French, which is an obstacle for the Syrian refugees. Um, another thing is we have a very low-quality education in public schools and at the moment public schools are the main venue for uh, the Syrian children uh, to access education. Um, Okay, so just to give you an idea of the scale of the crisis, so these numbers I think are even now uh, outdated. Some people estimate that there are around 1.5 million refugees in Syria. Um, the issue is with those who are registered and those who are not registered, because some Syrian refugees don't register for security reasons. Others, they might be from middle class, they don't need to register, etc. But according to UNICEF, 630,000 and UNHCR, uh, 630,000 uh, Syrian uh, 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 children are school age. Um, and as I said, as you see, Lebanon is the most popular uh, place now for the Syrian to uh, migrate. And this trend has actually changed over time. So Lebanon is becoming more and more the destination for the Syrian refugees. One reason for that is that Jordan operates a, a closed camp. Some Syrian refugees feel it's a prison. Lebanon, they are, you know, uh, kind of uh, um, spread all over the country. And that gives them more flexibility to move and travel. Anyway, I'll... Uh, 
uh, skip to the, so my main research question is, what are the main bottlenecks that currently uh, affect students' access, student children access to uh, education, but not only access, what we know is very important, actually quality, because they can access and they can soon drop out, as you will see actually is currently happening in public schools in Lebanon. So we visited, the, our method was case studies, so we took at the moment 10 case studies. We were hoping actually to go to public schools, but we weren't able to go to public schools because we weren't granted permission uh, in time to access. And this shows a little bit of defensiveness and how the ministry is treating researchers and anyone working in this. So we obviously interviewed the uh, teachers, the principals, the parents, so we did focus groups with the students and the parents. And in order to understand what's happening with the curriculum, we went into the classroom to see how the teachers are uh, overcoming the language barriers, teaching mixed ability classrooms, etc. So uh, these are where uh, our 10 uh, schools, and it was like a snowballing uh, sample. But the issue is I've never, I was telling Dawn, it was a field, you know, when we started in September, it became completely different towards the end of the year. Every day we hear of a new school opening, uh, particularly with the community-led uh, initiative uh, schools. These are opening every day, mushrooming, due to the lack of uh, schools. So we visited, uh, all our schools were private initiatives, even they were actually all charities and NGOs, but they, none of them were public schools. We were only able to learn about public schools because many of the students we interviewed were in the public system and they had left the uh, public uh, schools. Uh, so four out of five were doing uh, morning shifts, so you see an increase in the tendency to go for an afternoon shifts. Afternoon shifts tend to have a shorter educational learning program, so usually it's four hours, and uh, they only learn literacy uh, and uh, numeracy. And this has, is causing children actually a bit of uh, frustration because they're, uh, they're bored out of death. They want something extracurricular. They want something interactive, etc. Um, so uh, this is just a, uh, an overview of how many children we spoke to. We intend to visit, visit these 10 schools again at the end of the year to know how many of them uh, passed or didn't pass, how many will be going on, how many dropped out, etc. Okay, so just to give you an overview on education in Lebanon, and please feel free to stop me at any moment because I have been doing, you know, been doing education for a long time. I take for granted that people know many things. Uh, so please please me if, uh, if something looks uh, out of place. So the main issue at the moment, the question that really keeps, uh, you know, we hear all the time, Lebanon doesn't have the capacity to take this huge number of children. Um, the Lebanese government says they can only take 40,000 in the morning. Some people say that actually this is not very accurate and the Lebanese educational system can take more. Is this really accurate or not? So that's, that was one of the first things that I wanted to investigate. So the total number of children who are in school in Lebanon are over 900,000. Before I give you the, the breakdown according to public and private, I should alert you that the number of public schools is equal to that of the private schools. So we have the same number of schools. In the public sector, we have 275, and in the private sector, that includes uh, um, private 
profit making and private charity. And the private charity, the government pays a contribution to these schools. So you see that the majority of children in Lebanon go to private schools, although the number of schools are the same, which gives the, implica- you know, the, uh, um, uh, the conclusion that public, there are many public schools that are actually empty. And before the Syrian crisis, one of the tasks of the Minister of Education was to shut down these public schools that don't have many children. Um, I was telling Dawn earlier, um, for instance, if you take my uh, village as an example, it's a small village in the south of Lebanon, and um, uh, the head of the parliament, Nabih Birri, you know, after the civil war, he said, equal development for all the places. So he took on uh, himself the uh, task of Uh, building a school in every village in Lebanon, obviously out of the pocket of the government, not his, uh, uh, from his own private money, but he built actually villages in more, uh, sorry, schools in most villages. However, the quality of these schools were actually very, very poor. So in my village, there were only 26 children in this school that can take up to 400 uh, child and the villagers who are very poor they have to pay transport to get, send their children to a neighboring public school or to a private school now the school has over 100 Syrian uh, children studying in the school but the reason why you know, the Lebanese children even those disadvantaged didn't go to the school is the quality is very bad so one cannot help but feel a bit sorry about these children, the Syrian children who will have to cope with a very poor quality education in Onurwa school, we had 31,000. And uh, Onurwa is obviously, uh, just to give you a little bit of a background, so the uh, Syrian, uh, sorry, the Palestinian children who, um, they, uh, who took refugee in 1948, uh, they attend Onurwa schools run by the Onurwa. They study the Lebanese curriculum. It's compulsory for them to study the Lebanese curriculum and to do the official exams although later on they cannot really uh, get jobs in Lebanon as the professionals. So the Syrian Palestinians in uh, Syria, so the Palestinian Syrians in uh, Syria, now when they come to Lebanon, they have also to go to Onurwa schools and receive education there. So Onurwa has also um, experienced a huge uh, pressure. and It was already, they had overcrowded schools. They are one of the most underperforming schools in Lebanon. Um, and the Palestinian students, as we will see later, actually they they do the worst in the official exams in uh, Lebanon. So um, now let's look at the distribution of the percentages according to the uh, different age groups. Usually with compulsory education, in most countries they actually have most students, uh, you know, the pyramid looks like this. In Lebanon it looks the opposite in the public sector. So we have very uh, small number of children in preschool and the number starts to increase. It reached the uh, maximum in higher education at university, which is contrary to most countries. Uh, so, um, so what this gives us the conclusion that there are actually a huge play, many places in the primary education sector and smaller opportunities in the secondary. And it's important to note that at the moment, most of the refugees in the secondary are not actually accessing schools. Because of the curriculum, it's in English or French, and they're expected to have a very high command uh, of the language, so they're just not even bothering. Most of these are either out of school or uh, receiving uh, another form of education, as we will see later. So we have quite a few... um, you know, many places actually in the uh, public sector, in the primary schools. However, the issue is 
where are these schools scattered or placed? The majority of public schools are actually in the most deprived areas in Lebanon, in Akkar, Bekaa, and the south. And the highest percentages of students are actually in these areas. So these schools are already uh, quite uh, busy. Um, and the refugees, it happens that most of the refugees are actually choosing the most vulnerable communities in Lebanon um, they currently live there, so uh, which puts pressure on these disadvantaged uh, communities. Um, that's why even you know the infrastructure is very poor. The schools are becoming overcrowded, etc. So it really will take a lot of planning to uh, really distribute these uh, different you know these uh, Syrian communities appropriately over Lebanon, if it's possible ever. Let's look at quality of education. So. Again, the most uh, disadvantage in terms of uh, educational performance is are the, the north, the Bekaa, and the south. It's actually where the Syrians are going. So these are the schools that do, do the worst, and uh, where there's a very high dropout rate and also a very uh, high repetition rate. Also, to give you another idea, so the overall, the Brevet's grade 9 exam, it's the kind of the first exam that where uh, students who don't pass either go to vocational school or drop out. So 55% uh, is the success rate in public schools. So it's, a very, it's not a very high success rate. In UNRWA, it's even worse. It's only 13%. Um, Another thing, why I chose to highlight the results of the second language baccalaureate uh, performance is Lebanon always say that we cannot put, well, the Ministry of Education keeps saying that we cannot put the Syrians in the Lebanese public schools because they don't have good command of English and French. But we have actually a big issue regarding second language. It's the number one reason for Lebanese children dropping out from school. It was already the uh, top priority for the Lebanese government in the new educational strategy. Dropouts and second languages. USA did a study which evaluated the performance of the uh, English and French teachers and they found the majority to be below average. Um, there are many studies that show even these teachers teach in Arabic and the exam comes in English, so the children just don't make it because they cannot even read the question. It's a common issue for the uh, Lebanese vulnerable groups. So what I'm trying to argue here for is some of the challenges that the Syrian refugees are suffering from were issues that were already in our educational system, and they were already disadvantaging at least 20% of the population. So that's why some people are saying this is an opportunity for the government to really fix up its system. Uh, it's obviously a system where we are throwing a lot of money at it, but it's not giving us uh, enough, um, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a priority for the, uh, for the country. So another um, uh, issue that we have in Lebanon that the ministry says the Lebanese curriculum is much better than the Syrian curriculum. The Syrian are too... You know, um, they, they don't have any knowledge in science, math, or language to even access our schools. So I thought, let's look at some of the TIMS results. And the TIMS is a, it's a test that happens all over uh, the world to tell us the uh, standards in math and science. So if we look at uh, Lebanon, yes, we did uh, better than Syria in math, but in science, actually, the Syrians have done better in 2001. And just to point out, science is often the most difficult subject to learn in a second language. 
most of the research on second language focuses on science because it's far more difficult to understand scientific concepts in a second language. Um, and uh, this is where uh, research currently focuses its uh, attention. So in Lebanon, as we found in our study, science was the most difficult subject. It's already the most difficult subject even for the Lebanese who, are, uh, who have to learn it in, science, uh, in English or French. So just to give you an overview of so far what has happened with the Syrian refugees who've been living in Lebanon for the past three uh, years. Let's see how many of them accessed schools. So in 2011 and 12, we had 27,000 registered in public schools. In 2013, we had 37, and this year um, the estimations are around 83. It's a bit difficult. We shouldn't take these numbers on face value because some children drop out from one school and they go to another school because the Syrians at the moment, most of the families keep on moving uh, and some of the families have so moved at least three times in, a, in one year. So sometimes these figures can be a bit inflated. Uh, and we don't have an, a student ID. So obviously we have 630,000, only 83 accessing school. So uh, what are the rest doing? UNHCR and the Lebanese government are trying to promote informal education. And by informal, that means any kind of um, psychosocial programs, literacy, numeracy. It could be just you know, uh, sitting and singing, and uh, et cetera. It's, it varies a lot. And we will talk about these informal programs. Um, OK, I'm not sure why this is. Uh, Okay, so uh, in 2012, on the whole, 31% of the Syrians who are school age joined at the, the primary education. And the secondary is only 2%. So we can see that this age group of 15 and above is the most disadvantaged at the moment and the most vulnerable. 17% of those dropped out already. So, uh, and this is the issue. Many children are going in and uh, going out. Actually, when we were trying to select the public schools, it was very difficult to find schools that had many Syrian children in them because there are a few amongst like 20 or 30 uh, Lebanese. So what's the Lebanese government policy? And just to give you a, uh, an informal chat I had once with them, um, we were trying to organize a conference on this issue. So I called the person who's in charge of this uh, file at the ministry, and I was telling her we're expecting that next year we'll have at least uh, 300,000 who are school age. And she said, do you really believe it? Obviously, there won't be more than 30,000. So there was for a very long time a kind of denial that there will be a demand on public education. Uh, they were expecting that you know, the issue would be resolved very quickly for, for various reasons. The government didn't really invest uh, quickly and respond quickly to the issue. So this year, um, they estimated that they will have 200,000. And they wanted to have 40,000 in the morning shift and 45,000 in the afternoon shift, and 100,000 in informal education, which the UN agencies would deal with it. Um, and let's talk a bit about the morning and the afternoon shift. So the last year, the government said um, they gave orders to all principals in public schools to accept students, Syrian students, in the schools. And uh, they said, you know, you just stop accepting once you fill all the places in the school. And then, you know, the new academic year started. These children, they bought the costumes, the books, etc. They went to the school, and then there was a new regulation. No, you're not allowed to take any new children. Sorry, you misunderstood what we said. We meant the students from last year. 
But obviously there were spaces in some of these schools, but the government said no more children. Why is that? They wanted to push more for afternoon shift. Um, for several reasons. First of all, you know, there were issues of bullying, discrimination, parents complaining, teachers complaining. They're saying you cannot mix students and Lebanese and children. They're unable to teach both of them at the same time. And the other thing is <clears throat> the cost of the child in the morning shift is $150. The cost of the child in an afternoon shift is, uh, estimations vary between 650 to another figure by the World Bank, that is 2000 so the UN uh, agencies were asked to provide money uh, in order to admit 45,000 to second shifts. This year they weren't even able to meet 20,000, the figure. Uh, the Syrians don't want to go to the, second after, to the afternoon shifts because the quality is very poor. And um, the teachers, this was another uh, um, regulation that the ministry imposed that only Lebanese public school teachers are allowed to teach these uh, children. Many of these teachers didn't want to teach a second shift, although it would mean more money, but they don't want to. They're too tired. Uh, so, and some of them would come and just sit and not teach, etc. So, um, at the moment, there are 11,000 who are doing unrecognized uh, Syrian curriculum. These are often, as we will see later, either coalition or NGOs, uh, uh, etc. So, just to start with the research uh, findings. Okay, so the current provisions. So at the moment we have schools who are doing the Lebanese curriculum. These are either public or private. Most of the private who are doing the Lebanese national curriculum and are open to Syrian children are Islamic schools who are private schools registered in Lebanon. They are certified. What they've done is um, they tend to be mainly Sunni schools. Um, and they opened a branch for the Syrians. Some of them included them within the, with the other Syrian children. Others have opened separate classes for the Syrian. Um, they uh, recruit mixed uh, staff. So they have Syrian and uh, Liban Lebanese. And they accommodate, uh, particularly for the language. The advantage thing about them is that they are accredited, so all these students will get a certificate at the end. Uh, they have some flexibility in the curriculum, but not a lot. And there's the issue of the foreign language that children often uh, encounter. So if they have a Syrian teacher, the Syrian teacher teaches in Arabic, but gives a homework and the test in English, again, there's the same problem. And, um, and also, uh, in the public schools, there's a very high dropout uh, because the Lebanese national curriculum is being taught without any flexibility. Um, in the public schools, there's limited support for the teachers. And um, another issue is the high repetition rates. One of the policies that uh, is currently followed in Lebanon is if, if you can't speak English and you're grade, uh, let's say, eight, the solution is just we demote you three grades lower. So we put you in grade six. You're still expected to read, but you still cannot write your name, actually. So I've met children who have been repeating their classroom for the third time, and they expect to actually even fail this year because they're not getting the support. They're sitting in the classroom. They're not understanding anything. They still have the exam in English. They're not getting any additional support classes in languages. Uh, but this is the policy of the government. Many private schools are even doing this. And uh, I haven't actually been to any of the schools that was giving extra language courses to, to the children which would be the basic thing uh, to do. Um, uh, in the public schools, the advantage is being mixed. 
uh, with other Lebanese. But is this an advantage? Because there's a lot of bullying being reported, and many of the children we met who went to the private schools actually dropped out because of discrimination in public schools. In some public schools, they even um, separated the classrooms, and they had you know children with lights because this was one of the epidemics that you know the Syrian refugees have. But as well as the Lebanese, but they wanted to promote it as if it's because of the Syrians are here now. Children have lives, uh, and you know we have to get medication. So they even divided the children according to that. So some parents they just gave up, and next year they put their children in Syrian uh, schools. Um, so there are advantages and disadvantages to each of these systems that I will show. Then you have the Lebanese Arabized curriculum. This was actually done by a Syrian uh, uh, school. It was actually a private, it belongs to a private Lebanese accredited school, but they were, they, they tried the Lebanese curriculum, but it didn't work, it was too difficult. So what they did, they just translated the books. So they have the same page in English here, and the other one in Arabic. And actually, this is what, uh, in the, if you're doing a BA in English in Syria, that's what you have. You have the English poem in, uh, you know, in English, and then next to it in Arabic. And no wonder that most of the English graduates don't speak English in uh, Syria. So most of these kids actually don't learn English. But what do they do? They manage to strike a deal with the government. And this is something new that we've learned about our educational system. And I didn't know, although I was working for a long time in education, is that in Lebanon, you're allowed to test in the official exams in Arabic, French, and English. You can do this in grade 12 or 9. You have the right to do that. But because it's, it wasn't popular anymore, they forgot about it. So last year, the Syrian children, actually, who were allowed to set for an official exam, because many of them were not allowed because they didn't have their certificates, and this is another big issue, is if you don't have your certificates, then how will they know which grade you've achieved? Some of them might be lenient and put you in the age group you're in. Others might say, might give you an exam and you won't do well, so they demote you two to three years. Um, so at the moment, the admission is a very random policy, depends on the principle. Um, so these schools uh, agreed with the government that, they <clears throat> that the kids will have the exam in English, but they can answer in Arabic. So what the school spends all its time doing is teaching in Arabic, but teaching the kids to understand the questions in English. Um, so they get plenty of support from the teachers, and the teachers also get support, but the issue also is that they are segregated. And this is what we're noticing now, the trend, is most of the Syrian refugee children are being segregated. This is what the government is promoting for, you know, second shifts. It's not effective to do the mixed shifts, sorry, mixed morning mixed shifts. And even the unions are, you know, you see often articles being written uh, highlighting the issue of the Lebanese curriculum is a national issue and it cannot be taught by except only Lebanese are allowed to uh, teach the national Lebanese curriculum because it's way too complicated. Um, so <clears throat> it also addresses the secondary gap. Actually, it was only these schools where we were able to find students who were in the secondary level. In all the other schools we visited, we couldn't find anyone above grade eight. We couldn't even find grade nine. So it was only these private, mainly Islamic schools that... Um, that were really offering uh, these older children an opportunity to continue their education. The problem is that they rely on aid, and these schools only operate because they managed to receive uh, support, some from Qatar, etc. And then there are these Syrian national uh, schools that teach the Syrian national curriculum. 
Some of these schools that did the Arabized curriculum last year taught the Syrian national curriculum, and they realized that they actually disadvantaged the children by doing so, because many of them were not able to go back to Syria to set for the exam, so that's why they decided to change the curriculum. But there are still some schools doing the national curriculum, and these tend to be principals who were in Syria, operating, uh, you know, they were obviously, they had their schools, and they have their connections. So they take the names of these children, register them in Syria, and they try to help them during the official exams to go and do their exams there. The, the issue with this is not many of them can travel. Some of them we found uh, quite a few of them were not able to travel for security reasons. Again, it's segregated. It addresses the secondary gap, but it relies on aid. And then the other one that we came uh, across while we were doing our study is the coalition curriculum. And these are schools set up by the coalition, and they are mushrooming in numbers because they address a gap they have all the uh, financial aid that they uh, want to set up. But the issue is they are unaccredited. They cannot obviously even get the Syrian uh, accreditation. The curriculum is changed. It looks very much like the Syrian curriculum, but without the civics. And they've removed any references to the uh, Assad regime or the Ba'ath Party, etc. And they've added things related to the revolution. Um, and when we were doing the focus group for the parents, the, the parents that came were the parents of the grade 12 students because they, were, you know, they wanted to know what's going to happen with their children once they finish their uh, education. Um, they didn't get a yes or no answer from the school, so there was a bit of like being a bit misled. Many of the parents regretted registering their children in coalition because that meant a black mark against them. So they can no longer go back to Syria, they can no longer register in Syria like the other children. So many of them, you know, they said, you know, they would never recommend anyone to, uh, to put their children in coalition schools. And there was a very political, when we were doing this uh, fieldwork, there was a very obvious political you know, message that was being uh, communicated. The Lebanese curriculum is no good for the Syrian children. It has to be only the Syrian coalition curriculum, and that's the only way out. Even when we left the school, next day we found on their Facebook page our pictures for a start, and they had, you know, the Center for Lebanese Studies visited uh, this coalition school, and they uh, emphasized that the Syrian uh, coalition curriculum is the only way out, and it's the best solution for the children. So obviously we were horrified. We asked them to remove it uh, ASAP, which, uh, which they did. Um, so they have Syrian teachers, which is a, uh, it, it's a good thing. But the issue is that they undermine the children's future for higher education. And then we found schools that were doing the Libyan curriculum. And these schools were doing before the Syrian curriculum. But this principle had issues, and some were doing the coalition curriculum. And then they changed their mind because because of accreditation and because of the risk of travel. So they managed to connect with a Libyan test board, uh, board of, uh, I don't know, examination in Turkey that allowed them to register their children there and they can have the Libyan uh, official exam in grade 9 and 12. In the other grades, they were teaching the Syrian curriculum, but only in grade 9 and 12 they were teaching the Libyan curriculum. Obviously, the teachers were struggling because they have to teach the Libyan curriculum, which doesn't relate to them at all. Um, it was a weird experience, but nonetheless, the parents actually felt a bit more uh, uh, relaxed because they know that their children can go abroad. There was in interesting cases because there were some Lebanese children who were in Syria who came back to Lebanon, but they cannot 
register in a uh, their English is too uh, too poor so they <clears throat> registered in this school but the problem is you cannot in Lebanon you cannot do an official uh, uh, an international exam if you're inside the country you have to be abroad so uh, then the you know the parents were complaining like I don't know will the Lebanese government uh, you know accredit our uh, child's degree, you know, he was sitting, I think, grade uh, nine exam. So, you know, like you find so many stories and so many issues and problems uh, that these parents are stuck with. And they were uh, allowing the Syrian teachers to teach. And it's often actually resulted in a positive experience. Students and, and parents actually found it much better to have a Syrian teacher. Um, other uh, students didn't feel there was a difference. Um, again, there's the issue of unfamiliar uh, curriculum, and sometimes there wasn't enough support for the teachers. Um, and the problem is that this principal was saying he relies on aid. He basically went to the village gathering uh, support for these children to open this school. So uh, he didn't have grade four and five because he wasn't able to afford the salaries of the teachers. In the year before the teachers volunteered this year, he couldn't ask them to volunteer again. And then we have the non-formal education. Actually, this is what I didn't talk about in my sample uh, because I wasn't sure should I have, will I have the time or not. Uh, so I'm going to uh, go through this very quickly. But we went, one of the uh, popular forms of education now is non-formal education. And this can vary. There are many types. So there are something called accelerated learning programs. This was designed for the Lebanese who dropped out of the system and they want to bring them in. Because in Lebanon, once you're out, there is no way going back. That's it. You cannot access the system. You cannot sit for a grade 12 exam if you don't show your preview. You're not registered in a school, and you don't show the certificates of the previous grades. So this was always an issue against you know, equity and equality in education. Um, the law is still there, and one of the uh, uh, and you know many of the NGOs say if they can change this law, we can get many of the older children because we can open these classrooms, uh, give them intensive uh, <clears throat> uh, classes for a year and two, and they can set the grade 12 exam and go back to school, go back to university. This is one of the very easy solutions, but the government hasn't decided to yet on this. Uh, there are the psychosocial and there are others who do just literacy and numeracy. And the problem of these programs is although they, they, you know, students really enjoy them, they're happy, it gives them a structure in their life, but they are unaccredited. Some of the children stop going because they're, you know, um, there is no future, basically. And most of them don't join uh, education back. Some of them are improvised, you know, like the quality of learning in these classrooms were very, uh, very questionable. We've attended some of the classrooms just like, you know, okay, what shall we learn about today, you know? What about, you know, C, the letter C? So it was very improvised, uh, you know, teachers were just so very laid back. There was no um, monitoring, etc. And they are often for two to three hours. And again, they rely on either volunteering or aid, etc. Okay, now some strategies to deal with the language barrier. This I just chose to highlight what some of the challenges. Uh, so as I highlighted, you know, some did the demoting, but it wasn't helping at all. Some were doing the translation, compromising with the ministry, and seeking other uh, Arab uh, curriculum. So uh, I'm going to go through this very quickly because I'm aware of time, and I spoke too much. Uh, so uh, thank you for bearing with me. 
So again, we have an inequitable system that you really, if once you're out, you can't go in. Um, there's only one route to follow. There is vocational education, but at the moment, the Syrians are not really having access to that. There are very rich education provisions, either in testing or admission, etc. And there's the issue of the certificates. For instance, to sit the official exams. Last year, we were organizing a conference in June, and we had the general directorate of the Ministry of Education. And only two weeks before the exam, they allowed the Syrian children to sit for the grade 9 and 12 exam. And when we were doing the meeting, the results were out. But these Syrian children didn't know the results because they, uh, they had to show the certificates and they weren't able to show their certificates. So, uh, so they weren't able to sit for the second because in Lebanon, if you don't make the first exam, you have another one in the same year. So they weren't able to sit the second round because they didn't know if they passed or not. So, um, and obviously it's a very politicized issue. Uh, and you notice the differences in the regions that are pro-regime uh, or anti-regime. So, um, and you know, the issue of the coalition wanting to put pressure on uh, uh, foreign governments to accredit the uh, coalition curriculum. So there are many things that are interplaying and you feel that children and parents are often uh, the victims. There's the issue of mixed ability classrooms. It's not a new issue. It's always been in Lebanon as young as grade one. I've been to classrooms where teachers complained of mixed ability in grade one because some children go to pre, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, kindergarten, others don't. But in the Lebanese curriculum, uh, in the Lebanese educational system, you don't get any support as a teacher for that. Um, there's the issue of discrimination. It's quite common. Most of the children we met, even in Onurwa schools, they, receive, uh, they experience a lot of discrimination from the Palestinian Lebanese. Child labor, this is the yani, Children are always competing, particularly for the older ones, work or uh, uh, school. However, I should note that many of the NGOs and the parents I spoke to, um, the NGOs told me how much the Syrian parents valued education. And most of the children we spoke with, to had done some kind of work, but once they had an opportunity to go to a school, they actually went. So this is a very positive uh, factor. Um, at the moment, there are hardly any psychosocial support for the, uh, and many of these children have trauma. Some of them dropped out because of actually experiencing violence in Syria in a school, um, and there was no, uh, you know, no kind of support. And the other issue is that there, there are no, there's no support at home because most of the parents are, they don't speak English or French. So some NGOs opened uh, uh, after-school homework clubs, and this was really key for uh, students. Uh, uh, success, also the issue of transportation. So back to the main question, is it really a lost generation? I think the ones that higher, uh, really have the highest risk are those above 12, because most of those we met grade seven, they were thinking of dropping out. They were finding it way too difficult to continue. And we hardly found any students who were in above grade uh, nine, except in some of the Syrian uh, schools. There's the issue of uncertified education. With the government not providing places for the Syrian children, we will see more and more of these Syrian unaccredited schools, and this will put a big, uh, uh, you know, will pose a major challenge. And there's the issue of the quality of education. Okay, they, they have a place at school, but what quality? Will they drop out later? <clears throat> Interesting. This generation, we probably won't have any Syrian Palestinians who would study math and science. Because Onurwa schools said to the children who are in grade 10, you can only do liter literature. Because if they do the lit literature, they can pass. 
you know, altogether, you know, they will probably make the average uh, needed to pass. But if they do science and math because of language, they won't. So at the moment, on what uh, the policy is, all kids in secondary go to uh, do the literature. We only found one girl who was able actually to make it, and she insisted on doing science. And, uh, but all the children, and they were happy actually, they didn't mind uh, that issue. Um, there's the issue of higher education. You know, with unaccredited education, uh, uh, how many children will really be able to progress? Um, and obviously the issue of high dropouts. And this is, we're, wait, uh, we're waiting to see the, uh, the impact of this. So again, uh, you know, the issue of joining back education. And one of the main issues I would like to highlight is segregation. This is, the, uh, this is what we're seeing now. It has become a norm that Syrians and Lebanese have to study uh, separately. And I don't know, if, if the crisis lasts for 10 years, what would that result in? So um, I'll just, you know, I'm not going to read those out, uh, but I just want to highlight one thing, which is the role of the private sector. Maybe, you know, all the attention has been so far, particularly UN agencies, on the public sector. Maybe not, that's not the way out. Maybe the private sector is actually more capable of providing and addressing uh, those needs. I'm always in favor of the public sector, but I'm not very optimistic. Um, we're seeing that the private sector is far more flexible. In Saida, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar in Lebanon, but in Saida, there was one, a very successful model. What they did, they have a union of all municipalities, and they brought all the schools together in the region, and they said, look, we have, let's say, 200 children, um, and they are these age groups. Each school volunteered to open a classroom for an, a grade. Well, for no extra cost, and they took all these children to their schools, and they, they addressed this issue. All of them are private schools, they are accredited, so there isn't this issue of accreditation. So this was a very successful model uh, uh, in this uh, city. Um, anyway, I will, uh, I will finish there. Thank you very much, and sorry for talking too long. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Studies Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.